This is Speak Out Socialists, a podcast produced by Speak Out Now. We are a revolutionary socialist group. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. These are the reports from Wednesday, October 14th. Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day? Whose history? Monday, October 12th, was Indigenous Peoples Day, but the long-standing American tradition is to celebrate it as Columbus Day. The official change of name was marked in 1989 with a decree by the state of South Dakota. This has created controversy for some, but does it matter what we call it? It matters because a choice must be made. Whose history is told? The history of the conquerors and exploiters, or the history of those who struggled against them for survival? Through whose eyes do we choose to look at history? To look at history through the eyes of the oppressor is to erase the history of those they oppressed. To look at history through the eyes of the oppressed is to look at the nature of the society that creates that oppression. Before the invasion. Before Christopher Columbus and other Europeans began their conquest of the Western Hemisphere, the region had had a diversity of societies and cultures. In North America alone, there were many hundreds of different cultural groups speaking at least 300 distinct languages. The image of ruthless warriors is a racist fantasy that supported the genocidal extermination of whole societies. In fact, people lived in very different ways, adapted to the environment they lived in and how they got their food. Many bands or tribes lived by the gathering of plants, nuts, and roots, and fishing and hunting animals. Some moved with the animals they hunted or changed residence according to the season and availability of plant-based foods. Others, like the Tlingit and Haida of the lush northwest coast, lived in villages of hundreds of people, relying on the massive migrations of salmon as a staple of their diet. More than a thousand years ago, from around 950 to 1350 AD, in the area across the Mississippi River from present-day St. Louis, was the city of Cahokia. It was similar in size to London at that time, with a population of around 15,000. It was a corn-based agricultural society. Corn, or maize, was first domesticated in present-day Mexico. Cahokia occupied about six square miles and included about 120 large man-made earthen mounds, or flat-topped pyramids. Located on the Mississippi River, it was the center of a large trade network that extended throughout North America. Further to the east were a wide variety of cultural groupings, sometimes referred to as nations because of the number of people organized and their political complexity. They relied on mixed economies of cultivation of varieties of domestic grains and other plants, as well as hunting and fishing, or relied primarily on gathering hunting and fishing. From the Seminoles in the southeast to the Iroquois of the north, they built alliances based on trade and later based on defending themselves from the European invasion. Their political and social organizations were as diverse as the lands where they lived. The cultural variations were great. Some were matrilineal, tracing lineage through women, others patrilineal, tracing descent through men, and some were bilineal, tracing kinship through both parents. Some allowed for multiple spouses, and a considerable number recognized genders beyond male and female, such as twin-spirited, 
a gender category that was recognized as embodying characteristics viewed as both female and male, and being given special roles in society. Women usually participated with men in making important decisions for the band or tribe or nation. There was no reason to restrict the capabilities of individuals, as the contributions of each were shared by all, whether it was storytelling, music, other arts, or knowledge of the environment they depended on. Land was not individually owned. Although in some societies chiefs had rights to a certain amount of what was produced or collected, it was not for their own consumption or control, but for distribution at feasts. These ways of life were disrupted by the forcible introduction of another way of life, capitalism. The Virus of Colonization Christopher Columbus was an Italian explorer who was financed by the Spanish Empire to find a more direct route to Asia. Sailing west across the Atlantic Ocean, he landed on Caribbean islands, believing he was in Asia. The first act of colonization and exploitation began on the island which was called Haiti, modern-day Haiti and Dominican Republic, by the Taino people who lived there. Columbus described the Taino as, quote, so naive and so free with their possessions that no one who has not witnessed them would believe it. When you ask for something they have, they never say no. To the contrary, they offer to share with anyone, unquote. Thus began the war of more than 500 years on the people of the Western Hemisphere. Indigenous people were exposed to diseases they had never encountered, which sickened and killed whole populations. There were attempts by Europeans, including Columbus, to enslave people, as the attempt to colonize North America and later to create colonial nations took hold. The Europeans used horrific raids on villages and later systematic warfare and forced removals at gunpoint of tens of thousands of people to make the lands available for the European invaders. One of the most notorious examples in the United States was the Trail of Tears, the forced march of the people of the Cherokee, Muscogee, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw nations in the middle of the winter of 1838 from their homelands in Georgia and Alabama to what is today Oklahoma. It is estimated that half of the 16,000 men, women, and children died on the march. This was just one part of the larger forced removal of more than 100,000 members of those nations from their lands at that time. People were pushed off their homelands into reservations, often in the least desirable and most barren, unproductive regions. This practice continued well into the 20th century. People lost their entire means of subsistence as a result of the Europeans' attempts to break their connection to the land and destroy their cultures. And the lands they were forced onto were not uninhabited, which often created clashes between the people living there and the new arrivals. Today there are 326 reservations, and the U.S. government recognizes 554 different groups while refusing to recognize others, claiming they are not legitimate. And although there were more than 500 treaties signed between the U.S. government and different tribal groupings, sometimes at the end of a period of war where U.S. forces were defeated, the sovereignty and rights of indigenous peoples continued to be denied. As organized armed resistance by Native Americans in the West was eventually broken by the overwhelming force of U.S. imperialism toward the end of the 1800s, the U.S. government began a new policy of obliterating indigenous cultures, boarding schools. The Bureau of Indian Affairs and other organizations set up these schools to quote-unquote civilize people who lived on the reservations. Throughout the 20th century, thousands of children were forcibly taken from their families and raised in overcrowded, disease-ridden facilities run by white administrators and white teachers, with no access to their families and no access to adequate health care. There, the children were often subjected to military protocols. They were made to carry out manual labor, wear European-style uniforms, and speak English. 
They were taught American history through the eyes of the colonizers, and they were beaten if they spoke their native language. These boarding schools continued in some places as late as the 1990s. Despite the genocidal activities of the U.S. government and the continued denial of their rights, indigenous people in the U.S. have not disappeared. Far from it. There are at least 5.7 million Native Americans, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, which acknowledges serious undercounting, by as much as 5% on the reservations, which also means less access to public funding. Many have maintained their cultures and traditions of struggle. But the virus of capitalism continues its persistent assault on the Native population, attempting to marginalize and decimate them. There are battles over water and land. Some reservations are treated as dumping grounds for hazardous materials by businesses in the military. A somewhat recent example is the Church Rock uranium mill spill, where, in 1979, a dam collapse led to radioactive waste working its way into the water supply of the Navajo Nation. Poverty and lack of access to decent food and health care has led to the COVID-19 pandemic having a devastating impact on many reservations, but in urban areas as well. Overall, the COVID-19 pandemic has been devastating, with infection rates 3.5 times that of the white population. Some reservations have had the highest infection and death rates, often of younger people, of the entire country. People in a number of reservations took matters into their own hands, closing their reservations to all through traffic and unauthorized visitors, bringing the infection rate down. Standing against invading forces is deeply rooted in many indigenous communities. They have taken the lead in fights against destructive logging practices and against oil pipeline construction, the resistance at Standing Rock being just one example of many. What choice will we make? So, does it even matter if we call the day Columbus Day or Indigenous Peoples Day? It doesn't change the past, but it can impact our future. How we answer this question forces us to recognize the genocide and enormous theft of Indigenous peoples' land, labor, and resources that are at the foundation of this society. That, in turn, leads us to acknowledge the theft of people stolen from Africa and their stolen labor through slavery and then the incalculable amounts of wealth stolen from the labor of all working people that continues to this day. The American empire was built on theft. The current pandemic, climate catastrophe, political instability, and economic collapse are clear indicators that this empire is not healthy. As things continue to crumble around us, will we cling to the path that has led us here? Or will we organize ourselves to fight to build a different future that values all life and the planet? Alameda Health System Strike. Showing what workers are capable of. In Northern California, over 3,000 workers at Alameda Health System went back to work on October 12th after holding a five-day strike. Healthcare workers from seven different facilities, including Highland Hospital in Oakland, walked out on Wednesday, October 7th. Members in the different unions, including SCIU 1021, CNA, and ILWU, all held joint pickets and rallies throughout the five days of the strike. After a majority vote in favor of the strike, it was obvious that a significant number of the workers at Alameda Health System were fed up with the disrespect and threats coming from the administration. The list of over 30 takeaways proposed by management included egregious attacks such as a wage freeze, a 10% payment into the currently fully covered health care plan, removal of a night shift pay differential, disregard of seniority rules, and layoffs, among others. The feeling at the picket lines reflected the same anger that led people to vote to go out on strike but there was also a festive, jovial, and excited feeling that came from people coming together and saying in unison, enough is enough. 
Each day people gathered at the different locations from 6.30 in the morning until late in the evening to picket in front of their workplaces, holding signs, talking to each other, and sharing an experience that hadn't taken place since 2004. On Wednesday, the first day of the strike, over 300 people united in front of Highland Hospital and held a rally and a march around the facility. There was music, dancing, chanting, with workers from all different departments and facilities coming together, some for the first time ever. On Thursday, another rally was held in front of the office of the County Board of Supervisors. In response, during the rally, representatives of the board took an important step by stating that they were in agreement with the workers' demands to remove the independent board of trustees currently responsible for managing the health system, and who many workers and the unions argue is at fault for the system's current dire conditions. With many cheers and applause, workers welcomed the news. On Friday and Saturday, car rallies were organized, with dozens of cars parading around the different Alameda Health System facilities, honking horns and waving signs. On the last day, due to safety measures related to COVID-19, the unions decided to hold all strike activity online. The plan now is for bargaining teams to go back to the bargaining table with a new negotiation team for Alameda Health System selected by the Board of Supervisors and for the union to lay out its specific demands, starting with completely removing the long list of takeaways proposed by management. Despite the complications that a pandemic presented and the chronic level of exhaustion that these healthcare workers endure, they showed just how much we are capable of when we have a goal in sight. The fight for a better contract and a safe workplace is far from over, but the links and the connections made during the strike can be the fuel to energize the battles to come. Armenia and Azerbaijan at war. Dozens of deaths, hundreds of wounded, civilians and soldiers. What recently was a disturbing skirmish is now turning into a real war between Armenia and Azerbaijan in the southern Caucasus over control of the enclave of Nagorno-Karabakh, an autonomous republic during the time of the Soviet Union belonging at the time to the Soviet Socialist Republic of Azerbaijan, but populated overwhelmingly by Armenians. Thirty years ago, the collapse of the Soviet Union triggered a warlike nationalist inferno that resulted in 30,000 deaths and the displacement of hundreds of thousands of people. Nagorno-Karabakh unilaterally declared its independence, which the Azerbaijani state rejected, and which was not recognized internationally. What then? Independence for this mountainous enclave? A return to Azerbaijan? Attachment to Armenia? Since a ceasefire on May 16, 1994, the question has remained open. Eruptions of fighting have been frequent, the most recent in April 2016 and in July 2020. Local Patriotic War Songs The conflict has become an open war between Azerbaijan, a country of 10 million inhabitants, and Armenia, a country of 3 million inhabitants. Following the example of the Karabakh authorities, the rulers of Baku, the capital of Azerbaijan, and Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, decreed a general draft, starting with the very young 18-year-olds, and proclaimed martial law and curfews. The leaders Nikol Pechinian and Ilham Aliyev displayed the dead of the opposing camp as trophies. Each side is flaunting its ultra-nationalism, the alleged invincibility and glory of their quote-unquote heroic sons, and they oppose each other's religions. Christians on the Armenian side, although not all of them are Christian, Muslims on the other side. Again, a false generalization. Regional sponsors. No one can say which step led to this war exactly. 
for leaders of very poor countries where oil wealth, as far as Azerbaijan is concerned, is declining and benefits only an oligarchic minority, it is tempting to feed the population with patriotic songs. But the media is already echoing a bit of the panic within the populations, who are hoping for a lightning offensive but did not expect bombings, war, and the need for an exodus. Moreover, the war is being fueled by regional powers, Turkey, Russia, Iran, even Israel, even if only by supplying arms and even mercenaries. Turkey is said to have sent hundreds of Syrian mercenaries to Azerbaijan, and Erdogan's regime in Turkey, in its frenzied race toward repression, might find it in its interest to target, in addition to the Kurds and its left-wing opponents, the Armenian minority living in Turkey, in any case to rekindle the specter of the so-called Armenian question and the genocide of 1915. Israel, for its part, is said to have sold Azerbaijan an arsenal of sophisticated weapons, and Russia continues to play on both sides. It is an official ally of Armenia. It supplies the country with arms and other means of survival, though not without political compensation, and maintains a military base there. At the same time, Russia maintains close ties with Azerbaijan, which remains in its zone of influence. It also sells Azerbaijan arms, shares interests with it in the Caspian Sea, and exploits a not insignificant number of Azeris who have immigrated to the Russian Federation. In this strategic and oil-rich zone, the regional powers are therefore stoking the fires in the embers in order to pursue their own interests. And behind them, France, Germany, and the United States pretend to want to calm the conflict and are calling for a ceasefire. But above all, they aim to protect the complex and self-serving relations they have with these regional powers. Hence these bloody conflicts, unbelievable but real, between peoples whose true interest would be, on the contrary, to unite against the huge imperialist game, against this hellish setup of local, regional, and world interests. The truth is that until relatively recently, Armenians and Azeris lived and worked together in diverse communities without conflict. These divisions are not based in the real interests of working people. On the contrary, these divisions have been stoked by corrupt nationalist leaders and imperialistic regional powers who seek to benefit from the suffering of ordinary Azeris and Armenians on the ground. The only way the working people of the Caucasus region will find liberation is by uniting in common cause against the entire imperialist capitalist system that exploits all of us around the world. No relief for workers as stimulus is delayed until after the election. Democrats and Republicans in Congress still won't pass another so-called stimulus bill. Even though the first stimulus passed back in March went mostly to banks and corporations, it still provided some needed relief. But Congress has been nitpicking for months over the size of the crumbs that the next stimulus will provide to working people. And last week, Trump abruptly said he was going to cancel all stimulus talks until after the election. Apparently, ramming through a new Supreme Court justice before the election is fine, but working families have to wait until after the election for any minor relief. As these so-called leaders continue to delay, working people are struggling just to get by. Last week, 840,000 people filed new claims for unemployment insurance. And since March, more than 57 million people have filed. One-third of U.S. adults say they have difficulty meeting regular living expenses with about 22.3 million adults reporting they did not have enough to eat in the previous week. About 40 million renters can't afford their rent and could face eviction soon. While workers try to make ends meet, the richest of the rich have been making record-shattering amounts of money. 
During the first six months of the pandemic, 643 of the richest billionaires in the U.S. increased their wealth by $845 billion. Clearly, the priorities of this system couldn't be more backwards. Trump's Middle East Deals Cynical Politics, Not Peace Last month, on September 11th, President Trump announced on Twitter that he had arranged a peace treaty making Bahrain the second Arab country to make peace with Israel in 30 days. This announcement came just after a similar treaty signed by the United Arab Emirates. Bahrain is the fourth country on the Arabian Peninsula to recognize and establish relations with Israel, joining the UAE, Egypt, and Jordan. Trump presents these treaties as a victory for peace in the region, and especially for the Palestinians and Israelis in their 70-year-long conflict. The reality, like much that comes out of Trump's mouth or Twitter feed, is that these deals are only meant to fool Trump supporters and confuse others. The facts on the ground in the Middle East are that these treaties are one more step taken by the corrupt Middle East governments to openly abandon the Palestinians and make a closer alliance with U.S. interests in the region. Israel was founded in 1948 in Palestine, a coastal area on the Mediterranean Sea the size of Vermont. In 1948, Israeli military forces drove a million Palestinian Arabs from their homes and seized 77% of Palestine for the new Israeli state's territory. In 1967, the rest of Palestine, the West Bank and Gaza Strip, were seized in a second Israeli war on the Palestinians. Since 1967, Israeli settlers have flooded the West Bank, creating illegal settlements. In Israel itself, 2 million Palestinians, 10% of Israel's population, live as second-class citizens, much like African Americans in the U.S. South before the civil rights movement of the 1960s. All of this was done with the support of the Israeli government since 1948. In addition, Israel has had the support of the United States. Every administration, Republican and Democrat, has committed to support Israel with money and weapons, a total of $234 billion since 1948. In return, Israel is a cop on the beat, keeping the Middle East under threat of violence to protect U.S. interests. In the past, the Arab states officially condemned the ethnic cleansing of the Palestinians that is at the origin of the state of Israel. This is not because the rulers of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, or Iraq, have ever worked for anything other than their own benefit. They were forced to voice some opposition to Israel by the political situation in the Middle East. Ordinary Arab people saw the Palestinian struggle against occupation as a part of their struggle against foreign powers and against their own rulers who were ready to sell the resources of the region to the highest bidder. Every Arab ruler had to claim to support the Palestinians 100% or face the anger of their own population. From the King of Saudi Arabia to the presidents of Iraq and Syria, they all shed tears for the Palestinians and condemned Israel in the harshest terms. These governments brought toothless condemnations and criticisms of Israel to the United Nations, knowing that any action against Israel would be vetoed by the United States. Out of the 27 times the United Nations has officially condemned governments for human rights abuses, Israel has received 21 of those official condemnations. Even if these resolutions achieve nothing, they are a recognition and an expose of Israel's abuses against the Palestinians. The Palestinian National Movement became trapped in a so-called peace process starting in the 1990s. The U.S. government oversaw these pointless negotiations, pretending to be a referee or quote-unquote honest broker. Meanwhile, the Palestinians lost more land as the number of illegal Israeli settlements more than doubled. 
Today, settlers in the occupied West Bank make up 5% of Israeli citizens, over 500,000 people. With the help of the U.S., Israel has rejected any compromise that would allow Palestinians to build their own state on what is left of their land. Over time, the hopes and dreams of Palestinians gave way to despair as the National Liberation Movement failed to achieve any real independence or defend their remaining territory. The newly signed treaties are the product of a long period of cooperation and mutual interest between the Arab rulers of the Middle East and Israel, especially those who want to be close to the United States. The treaties formalize and coordinate military cooperation between Israel and the UAE and Bahrain. While Saudi Arabia has not signed a treaty with Israel, it has a big influence on the UAE and Bahrain. The treaties reflect the attitude of the Saudi government, that Saudi Arabia is ready to accept and work with Israel, both of them as allies of U.S. interests, in opposition to the U.S. state's main competitor for influence in the region, Iran. In January, Israel declared its intention to annex 20% of the Jordan Valley in the West Bank, another major land grab. Trump gave this annexation his blessing and made it a central part of his so-called peace plan, his quote-unquote deal of the century. The UAE and Bahrain have shut their eyes to all of this while they signed their treaties with Israel. The news about these treaties is just a part of Trump's strategy to build up his personal brand during the election campaign in the U.S. The treaties are one more cynical alliance between the ruling elite of the Arab world, the state of Israel, and the U.S. government. Real peace and real liberation for the Palestinians and the people of the Middle East won't be achieved by negotiations among these corrupt rulers. It will only come when the Middle East states and the U.S. empire they support are torn down and replaced with a system that represents poor and working people, both in the Middle East and around the world. The Pope and Politics. What could possibly go wrong? Early this month, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, Pope Francis, published his view of the state of the world, and he doesn't think it's pretty. Quote, In today's world, many forms of injustice persist, fed by a profit-based economic model that does not hesitate to exploit, discard, or even kill human beings. Unquote. Speaking of climate change, the Pope wrote, Quote, often the voices raised in defense of the environment are silenced or ridiculed using apparently reasonable arguments that are merely a screen for special interests, unquote. Moreover, thanks to, quote, this shallow, short-sighted culture that we have created, unquote, as the environmental crisis deepens, quote, the scene will be set for new wars, albeit under the guise of noble claims, unquote. The Pope's solution? He urges the world's, quote, political leaders to devise an effective development plan that could be freely accepted and sustained over time, unquote. The Pope is right to see the onrushing crisis, but it's wrong to say we have created it. When did working people decide to allow the rich and powerful to loot our planet and launch the wars the Pope condemns? Did we really have a say when the government passed the laws that protect the profit-based economic model that does not hesitate to exploit, discard, or even kill human beings? While the Pope's strong words can perhaps heighten awareness of the crisis, his solution, to look to the world's political leaders, is a non-starter. The politicians put into power by the quote-unquote profit-based economic model will never attack the foundation they stand on. The solution will have to come from us. How we join together and the fights we make to uproot this profit-based system of capitalism that threatens human civilization and even life itself. The economy is getting better? Who are they kidding? Since early summer, not only the president and his cronies, but even some uncritical economists are trying to convince us that things are getting better. 
They say that unemployment went down over the summer, which it did, mostly owing to the allowance of outdoor dining and other activities, as well as states like Texas and Florida, which chose to put their economy ahead of people's lives. But getting better? The facts. 28 million people are collecting unemployment benefits. That's almost five times as many unemployed as there were in January. There were one million new unemployment benefit claims last week. There are millions who have given up even looking for work, and therefore aren't counted in those statistics. That means that the official unemployment rate of 8% may obscure a real unemployment rate of 18%. Disney, Exxon, Allstate, the entire airline industry, and many other businesses are ending furloughs and starting to lay people off outright. As cold weather sets in, expect some of those restaurants that survived the summer to die off for good. Those furloughed will become unemployed. Temporary layoffs will become permanent. This means that while we may have gotten past depression-level unemployment, we're still in a deep recession with little hope of real recovery. Does anyone at this point really expect Congress and the President to address our problems in a meaningful way? The politicians and their media hangers-on can say what they want, but we can see the reality for ourselves. There are hundreds of millions of us. We make society run. We do the work. We can push these people out of our way and make the changes we need. Let's start talking about how to do that. Our website is speakoutsocialists.org. You can find us on Facebook at Speak Out Now or on Instagram and Twitter at Rev Socialists. Thanks for listening.